Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Good morning. There we go. Thank you. So this is what she said to me. She said, um, should I be concerned about a hurricane? So Friday, I was flying back from Nashville, where I'd been with my wife, uh, helping with our grandkids. And I was on a plane, uh, a Southwest flight. And next to me was a lady that was headed to New Orleans. And she, that was her question. Should I be worried about a hurricane? I said, no, uh, I wouldn't be worried about a hurricane. Hurricane season is June to, to November. Unless you're eastern Florida, then it's November 15th, I guess. It's a little longer. At least it was this year. She said, is it safe? I said, is, is what safe? New Orleans. And I said, so um, where are you from? <laughs> and she said, I'm from Chicago. I said, yes, it's safe. <laughs> it's a very safe city to be a part of. <sighs> she was going to New Orleans to, with some friends to have a birthday party. I didn't ask her her age or anything like that. But I did think, you know, in the back of her mind was, a, was just this, this far-off idea of a hurricane that might just kind of come in uh, unannounced and, and not obvious and, and take over New Orleans. And, and, I, and I was proud of myself for going, no, that's June to November. And we, we know when hurricane season and we know how to be ready for that. We know to you know, get batteries and do these kinds of things. And then I started thinking about it in relation to today's sermon. And I thought, you know how many Christians leave the house every morning completely unprepared? They don't realize that really every day of the Christian life could be hurricane season. It's, it's not easy to live as a Christian in a community, a world, and a surrounding that is saying, please do things in life differently, have different priorities. Now, I don't think any of us have suffered the kind of persecution or uh, oppression or um, uh, death, even physical uh, abuse that the early Christians of Peter were, were receiving. They were being marginalized. They were being criticized. They were, had to move because of their faith. Uh, they were, uh, Nero was killing Christians and just for sport. And so it was tough. Matter of fact, when you look at the Western church, sometimes we, we kind of pride ourselves on we don't suffer here. And in reality, without um, suffering, if you don't like that word, you could say sacrifice. If you don't like that word, you could find another one. I can't find one right now, but you could find one. And, uh, and just think, you know, what might I be missing out on? Because the things of life that are difficult often produce the things that we really want. Maturity, character, except maybe when it comes to our faith. We want that just to be easy and, and, and not, no pushback. But in reality... There, we come from a, a long line, the, the story of the Bible. They're suffering throughout the Bible. And it, so it, it's there. And um, if you look at even the very first Christians, there's just this long list of people that struggled for their faith. And in the world today, that's true. So to kind of get our bearings on today's message, I, I want to start with a kind of an admonition, and we're going to talk about some attitudes, four attitudes that help us with suffering, and then we're going to talk about some actions that make 
our community function better. So the first one is this strong admonition. It's in verse four. It's in the center of our passage. We're in 1 Peter chapter four. We're gonna go from verses one to 11, two paragraphs, but we're gonna start in the middle of it. And this is what it says. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded so that you may pray. In the midst of a culture living uh, we're trying to live in the midst of a culture that's often against us. We're trying to stand in the grace of God. We're trying to be faithful to Christ in all that we do and think when sometimes it feels like very few around us are interested in that. Peter starts by saying, you need to be alert and sober-minded. That in your outline. Be alert and be sober-minded. Now, when you think of being sober-minded, I want you to think focused, and sustained, focused attention. That's sober-mindedness. Now, the opposite of sober is drunk. When we're drunk or high or consumed by some foreign substance, we lose our capacity to think, to speak, and to act rationally. That's what drunk means. And so when you think about it, in our minds, we're drunk when, when our minds are consumed with thoughts and that, that keep us from thinking rightly about reality. Now, 1 Peter is going to always help us see uh, reality and see the way God sees things. So that's why he's saying, I need you to be uh, sober-minded. Now, a couple weeks ago, maybe 10 days ago, I, I had to take my 90-year-old dad to the hospital for some surgery. It kind of came upon us in a hurry. He's good. He's amazing, actually. But that little week in the hospital meant I needed to rearrange my schedule. My sister, my only sibling, needed to arrange her schedule. And we needed to give our focused attention on getting dad in, getting him around, and getting him out. And you would expect, you would hope, that a good son would be focused attention on that. What I realized coming out of it, because I had focused there, is that I missed a lot of things. I missed some phone calls I didn't return, some text messages that I didn't, you know, now you can keep them and save them. I didn't do that. People are like, did you get my text? No, I lied. I did. I just forgot it. I didn't return calls. I didn't return emails. I wasn't focused like I wanted to be. I, I was sober-minded on this, but not on this. Here's the thing. You would expect to give your attention to, to what's necessary. But I think that many of us are willingly not sober-minded. We may live in the least sober-minded culture that's constantly, constantly distracted. Some of us willingly clutter our minds. We become drunk on our news feeds and the hangover from a constant newsfeed is anxiety, fear, and anger. That's what happens. And some of you aren't reading newsfeed. Some of you are, that's not your concern yet. Some of you get drunk on your social media feed. The hangover from that is envy, comparison, the lack of joy, and no gratitude for every good thing that's right in front of you because you long for all the good things that someone else took a picture of, Right? And then some of us, because life is so hard and the things that come into our mind just normally uh, that bother us, we just like to have a little buzz kind of all day, a little mental buzz. We're not really drunk, but we're constantly distracted because that's better than. So we're constantly checking all of the things that we can check. And it just keeps us kind of just a, just a little, as my family would say, a little tight throughout the day. 
You just had a sip in the morning, a sip at lunch. And I can't think about the things that are wearing me down. And Peter says, that ain't going to work to live. You need to be sober-minded. He mentions it three times in this book, first chapter. Chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, I need you focused. Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. You need to set your hope there. If you're not sober-minded, the implication is you're going to set your hope on today's, what's going on around us in our newsfeed, and you're going to get distracted and overwhelmed. Second place it comes up is in chapter 5, verse 8. Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Not too particular, just anyone will do, and you are maybe perfect to devour. The implication is if we're not sober-minded, we're going to get devoured, and we're going to constantly be overcome by the temptations we face. So because I'm trying to read on being focused, I read a book a while back called um, Deep Work by a man named Cal, uh, I, Cal Newton. Cal Newton. And his, his premise was this, this. If we're going to succeed in an ever-changing culture, we need to be able to do deep work. You need to be able to focus. It's almost a skill that has been lost on a generation. It's not 10 minutes. It's not 15 minutes. You need to be able to focus. And his, as he did his research, as he talked to sociologists, what he discovered was it isn't easy to be focused. And you need to create structures in your life to help you do that. But he also found this, that our willpower is rather limited. And that over time, if constantly pressured, we will give way. And if we don't learn to strengthen our willpower through focused attention, could I say sober-mindedness, then we'll just be swept away in, in, the, in the least amount of time imaginable because we don't have any strength there. We've never worked at it. Some of you can't sit for five minutes in quiet. Just quiet. Just nothing. You say, I got to check something. And now that we can check something all the time, which we do in our family ad nauseum, which is Latin for it makes me sick. I don't know. Check that. Where'd that guy come from? Where did he play football? We're not even watching the game. Who made those cleats? What color is that on the jersey? You know, you can Google everything and get a response. And we do. And we're distracted. Peter says, I need you focused. I need you to be sober-minded. Now back to verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you can pray. When people, when Christians talk about their prayer life, most Christians say, I don't pray enough. I don't pray enough. As if there's a quantity that's enough. I don't know what enough is. But here's what happens when you don't pray. Here's a few things that happen when I don't pray. Uh, when I don't pray, I don't cast the concerns of life onto God. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. If I don't go, if I don't learn how to do that and go, God, this is yours. God, this is yours. Then all my cares and anxieties are on my back. And over time, they wear me out. They leave me tired. They leave me fretful. They leave me consumed with worry because I quit praying because I'm not sober-minded. When I quit praying and I'm trying to live for God, but not from the power that he gives me through the Holy Spirit, I will begin to think, follow me here, I will begin to think that everything he's asking me to do, I must do on my own, and I begin to try to do the work of God for God himself. You follow me? 
And so what happens is the well-intentioned Christian that has quit praying begins to try to do all that God's called them to do all by themselves, never once going to him and say, God, I need your strength. God, I need your help. And what happens is it overwhelms us. We're not designed to carry what God alone is designed to carry. Not only does it overwhelm us, but it'll, it'll ultimately crush us. And when it crushes us, it'll leave us bewildered. And then we'll start to deconstruct our faith and wonder what in the world went wrong with God when really we just need to ask, why didn't I give to God what's, what only he can do? Make sense? When we quit praying, then we don't ask for forgiveness. And, and um, you know, so we've, I've traveled recently. My wife has the gift. We call it the ministry of little bags. That's, what, that's our term that we came up with. This is what it means. I couldn't fit it all in that bag, so I added another bag and then another bag. And I like to carry her bags for her. It's just something I like to do. We did it when we were in school here. Like, Let me carry your backpack. But when the little ministry of little bags starts to accumulate, there's just one more thing to carry. Oh, can you get that? Can you get that? Can you get that? And I'm just, a, you know, a beast of burden before the end of the trip. The same thing happens when we quit to pray and we go, I'm not going to confess that. I'm just going to just put that on and I'm going to get this one. And then before you know it, because I'm no longer praying, because I'm not sober minded, I am completely weighed down by shame and guilt and I'm sidelined. Make sense? So the strong admonition is you need to be sober minded. You need to be sober minded so that you can pray. Because if you don't, Man, it'll be, it'll be tough. That's why it's an imperative. Peter's not suggesting it. Hey, you should be sober-minded. You should be alert and sober-minded. It'll be helpful. No, he's saying, you got to be. Life's hard. And walking with Jesus is hard. And why? Because the, the end of all things is at hand. The world is not the end. And, so, you know, well, we'll get to that later. We'll get to that later. So let's start at the beginning. There's the strong admonition that sets the frame for us. And here's, the, here's where it starts. I'm just going to read the half of verse 1. It says this, Therefore, since Christ suffered in, your in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. So we're going to arm ourselves with certain attitudes, four of them. And we're going to be armed with them like a weapon to help us navigate suffering because we choose to follow Jesus now, I don't know about you, but let me just name some things that happen uh, as we choose to follow Jesus. You, you might not get the business deal that you wanted to because it was corrupt, because it was, it was errant, because it was illegal. And you said, you know what, I, I'm not going to do that. But everybody's doing it. Yeah, but I'm not going to. And so you don't get the deal. You, say, you might say, well, I'm going to go out on a date with this guy that says he's a Christian and really all he wants to do is sleep with me. And I'm saying, I'm a follower of Jesus, so that's not what we're going to do. And he says, then we're not going to date. And so you're like, hmm, okay, let's see what books I haven't read, right? I'm not going to do, I'm not going to do that. Hey, look, we're going, to have, we're, going to, we're going to go out after work and we're going to just go out and get a drink. And you're like, ah, okay, I might do that. And then we're going to, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. Well, what's wrong with you? What you just said? Right? For those of us out there in the work world, it comes at you at all kinds of times. And it's not the same thing that Peter's talking about, but it's, it's like it. And we'll see it's, it's very much like it. Um, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves. Get ready with the Jesus attitude that you need to have. Now, if you're not a Christian, 
I'm going to be talking about suffering a lot. And many people that are not Christians see suffering in the world as a great evidence that there is no loving God because a loving God would not allow suffering. Let me just speak to that. Our loving God did not create it. He came to save us from it. He stepped into it to suffer with us for the mess that we created, not him to give his life for us, to suffer and die for us so that we might not suffer and face eternal suffering or eternal punishment. And he knows, and we know, if we follow Christ long, that suffering is not without purpose. I'm not saying go look for it, but it is often what grows us up. It's also often what tests our, tests our faith. So in your outline, I just say this. Be alert and ready to suffer. Now, Peter's not just kind of the Debbie Downer of the New Testament. He's not the only person that said this. Jesus said, hey, look, if you're going to follow me, you need to know something. The world might hate you. John 15, 18. If the world hates you, he told his followers the night before he died, keep in mind, it hated me first. Beat you to it. The Apostle Paul, in his discipleship course to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Oh, we, we often leave that out of our discipleship courses. You, you, you might get some serious pushback. <clears throat> so back to verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in his body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for human evil desires, but rather for the will of God. If, because Christ suffered, I need, to I need to choose that. Because he did. So what, what am I going to arm myself with? Well, let me tell you what this isn't saying. This isn't saying if you choose suffering that you'll never struggle with sin again. 1 John 1 says if you claim to be without sin, you're a liar. What he's saying is if you choose not to capitulate into the sinful activity that you're being drawn into, you might have suffering that goes along with rejecting that. And if you do, then you're not focused on that. You're over here. You've effectively been done with sin. You, now you're focused on living for righteousness. Does that make sense? You follow? Give me some head nods or something. Yeah, there's got a couple. Right? I don't want to talk so fast that, 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 I, that I miss it. That's what he's, that's what he's saying here. He's saying, if you do this, then you're making a choice, and it's not an easy one, but it's not the, the choice to just go with the flow, to bend uh, under pressure. And then in verse 2, he explains, the, and as a result, you're not going to, if these are the choices you make, then your earthly life's not going to be filled with evil human desires. You're going to be saying, I want to do what God wills. And these are... These are tall order kinds of directives from the apostle. So um, our attitude, the first thing we arm ourselves with is that we have a choice. We choose sin or we choose suffering. We choose sin or we choose suffering. That's often the it's what it feels like. If I do this, this might be a ton of fun. I might be tempted to do it. And if I don't do that, I'm going to choose this, which may be difficult. So a, a lady by the name of Karen Jobs, not Carrie Jobs, the singer, Karen Jobs. Karen's a, uh, a scholar, Carrie's a singer. But Karen said this, and just see, she's going to talk about Rome first century and the way Christians were viewed and see if it rings any bells with how we live our life as Christians today. 
The pagans of the first century viewed Christians as killjoys who lived gloomy lives devoid of pleasure. The pleasures from which Christians of the first century typically abstained were the popular forms of Roman entertainment, the theater with its risque performances, the chariot races, the gladiatorial fights with their blood and gore. The Christian lifestyle, she says, also condemned the pleasures of indulgent temper. I'm just going to be mad and take it out on everybody. Sex outside of marriage, drunkenness, slander, lying, covetousness, and theft. These attitudes toward contemporary Roman customs and morals, combined with the Christians' refusal to burn incense to the emperor, a gesture of civic gratitude intended to assure the well-being of the empire, armed, uh, earned Christians with the reputation of being haters of humanity and traitors to the Roman way of life. That sounds very much like today. As I look in the room, I see students, high school, and college. You guys are faced with it all the time. All the time. Am I going to go with the crowd? Because I love the crowd. I love people in the crowd. Or am I going to stand for Jesus? And it can be really hard. And so just the arm yourself. Jesus suffered, so he understands it. And so we can choose that. He goes on with an, he gives us the second thing to arm ourselves with. And that's an attitude toward our sin. And as I read this, I'm aware that some of you might be in the throes of a sin addiction. But here's what he says in verses three and four. For you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. Here's our, here's our second thing we must arm ourselves with. We've sinned enough in the past. We've given it enough time. Past sins are enough. Now, for those of us who came out of darkness into light, who spent enough time in that world, we know how, how depressive it is. You may have fun for a moment, but in the end, you still wake up with the hangover and all the, all the complications of all the decisions you made in that state. Some of us can go, yes, amen to that. And Peter's saying, You've given that enough, the partying, the all nights. Let's move on. And then if you choose to move on, don't be surprised that your friends or those folks that you work with or those people around you aren't just going, oh, that's great. They may ridicule you or they may do what um, four-year-olds do. I, I say four-year, four or five-year-olds particularly little girls, and I had two of them. <coughs> I have two of them, but they were little. And they say this, I hate you. You're not my friend anymore. It's, a, it's the ultimate throwdown, right? We're not friends, and I hate you. Today, adults call it cancel culture. That's the adult form. And let me assure you, both hurt. Both hurt. Peter's just saying, hey, don't be surprised. Because when, you, when, when your business gets shunned because of what you believe and people work behind the scenes to make the contracts go another way, 
because you've stood up to somebody and said, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that. That's illegal. And they went, well, I'll show you illegal. I'll just put you out of business. It happens. It happens. And we can get overwhelmed um, by it, just the, the pressure. But here's the question Paul asked in Romans chapter 6, verse uh, 21. What benefit did you reap at the time from the things that you're now ashamed of? What did you benefit from all that crazy lifestyle that now you're ashamed of? Those things lead to death. And so if you're, if you're, if you're knee deep in it, waist deep in, in this list, and you're like, I'm still trying to find life there and it's killing me. Let me tell you how to get out. Put down the shovel, first of all, right? Quit digging and call out for help. Now, if you're a Christian, you may go, I'm too embarrassed. That's pride. You have to put that down. And you have to extend the hand and say, Jesus, help me out. His arm is never too short. And he'll pull you out. Peter's arming us with the knowledge that you've given enough to that. Let's, let's move on. And you don't, have to give an, you don't have to give an account to the people who ridicule you. You have to give an account to God for your life and your decisions. Something we don't talk nearly enough about. Verse 5. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You don't have to give an account to them. You have to give an account to God. And they are going to have to give an account to God. Those who ridicule you and belittle you because of your faith, they're going to have to stand before God and give an account. We live in a culture where we, we want to sue somebody. We didn't do anything wrong. We're going to sue somebody. We didn't do anything wrong. We're going to blame shift. We didn't do anything wrong. We're going to get the responsibility off my back and put it on your back. But there's a day when there's nowhere, there's nowhere to hide. And we're just face to face with the living God. And he's going to say, I need to give me an account of your life. Why is this an encouragement to them? Because God will be the judge. And if you've lived under, under persecution, if you've lived under suffering, if you've lived under ridicule, and you wonder, my God will not delay. We sing that. And you think, he sure seems to be delaying. Because it's hard. Peter says, in the end, he gets the final say. And you need to know that, even if it doesn't feel like it. Then verse 6. <coughs> Excuse me. In verse 6, um, Peter leaves out words and as he writes. That's the way I understand Peter. I leave out words. If you, when I text people, I leave out sentences. Uh, when I write and when I do my sermons, I, I leave out words. I, and I asked my wife, who's probably the only person on the earth that can really speak clearly into this because she's been getting letters from me since we were teenagers. I said, help me understand what my problem is. She goes, you think you go too fast. And you leave, out, you leave out sentences. You do it when you're preaching. I'm like, do I really? Oh, yeah. You like leave out entire thoughts. So let me just say I'm sorry for that. <laughs> Evidently, I trust her. But I think Peter just leaves out some words. Verse 6 is one of those kinds. For this reason, the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, it says in the NIV. You, your translation may just read dead. Uh, which leads to a lot of confusion. So English translators have added the word are now dead that they might be judged according to the human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regards to the spirit. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean so I can tell you what it does mean. It doesn't mean that after you die, you get a chance to hear the gospel again. You get a chance to respond to God again. I know that 
You may have heard that, but that's not what this is saying, and that's not what happens. Why do I know that? Hebrews 9.27 says, For just as a person is destined to die once and then face judgment. It's very clear there. So what is Peter saying here? I think he's saying, hey, I know that we preach the gospel to people. They trusted in Christ. They said yes to Jesus. And while they may have been ridiculed and judged in their human body and maybe even been put to death, when they stand before the judge, he's going to say, you've trusted in my son. That's what Peter is trying to say. He's not saying Jesus is preaching to the dead. He preached to those that have died in Peter's lifetime. And Peter wants his readers to know that even if they're judged by other people, to the point of being excluded, to being condemned, being put to death. In Christ, they can stand with confidence before God, knowing that he will accept them because they've trusted in his son. Does it make sense? Yeah, that's what he's saying. Okay, carrying on. One of the great temptations people will face and push on you is say, hey, look, everybody's doing it, and you're going to die anyway. I'm just going to have a lot more fun than you. I don't know if you've ever heard that. And, I'm, and, and what I want to say is, this life isn't all there is. I have an eternal perspective, and I believe there's a loving God that's going to hold me accountable for my life. So I don't just live for today. I live for eternity. So here's the next thing we arm ourselves with. In Jesus, we have the ultimate victory. In Jesus, we can endure here because we know that it's in the end days, that we will be justified before God. Now, that seems like we're just going to put everything off into the future. Well, some of it is. Life is hard. It's difficult. And it's, so it's helpful to remember that. I want, to, I want you to know, I know it, it's really difficult to live and, and suffer. Suffering is not easy. That's why we need to be of sound mind. We need to be alert and sober-minded because it's hard to live against the stream day after day after day after day. And the world is asking us to, to deny Jesus and to, and to conform to its pattern rather than to live righteously. And one of the things that we must do is be, create a safe place where we can be together and encourage one another and love one another. So verse 7, we've seen it multiple times already. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded so that you can pray. Christians don't live as if the end is near. I didn't grow up playing soccer. It wasn't around when I was growing up. It was just football. And so I still don't get it. I've had a couple kids play it, but the whole clock thing on a soccer game makes no sense to me. You don't know when the game's going to end. You just have to play. You kind of have an idea, but you don't really know. And then when the time's up, they might put more time on it, which is really bizarre. <coughs> oh, no, we're going to give you another minute and a half out of 90 minutes. Excuse me while I cough. Now you're thoroughly awake. Okay. Here's the point. 
If the Christian life were a soccer game, we would play with the end in mind. Too many Christians don't even play like there's an end coming. There's an urgency in the 90 minutes of a soccer game. I don't know when it's over. Keep playing, keep playing, keep playing. God is the one who determines it. So be alert and live with the end in mind. If, if, the, if the admonition is to be alert and sober-minded, if the attitudes are to choose sin over suffering, to our past sins are enough, God will be the judge, and in Jesus we have ultimate victory. If those are the attitudes we can hold on to, what are the actions in our community that are going to make it a place where we can be that will sustain us? Here we go. Verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Again, Peter's not saying, he just doesn't have enough words. He's not saying that our love for one another is what covers sins. Jesus covers sins. What he is saying is that if we love each other, then we're going to offer forgiveness to one another. We're going to receive forgiveness from one another. We're not going to let bitterness seep its way in. We're going to keep short accounts. That's what it means to love one another. And why would Peter even mention this? Because Peter denied Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. And Jesus came back to him and loved him and reinstated him and commissioned him. He knows what love does. And if you've been deeply loved, then you know the power of it. Here's the problem. We can't love each other on a Sunday morning like this. I mean, we can, but not easily. Love isn't tested in, in casual acquaintances. It's tested when somebody steps on your toes, somebody does something wrong, somebody uh, lets, lets you down, somebody, uh, you know, hurt, it hurts. Now love is tested. Sunday mornings are acquaintances, and if you don't like each other, and, and there are people in the room that don't, they just sit on opposite sides, or they go to different surfaces, or they go to different locations. That's not what Peter's talking about. Peter's talking about being in enough community where we love each other, we care for each other, and we call each other up because it's hard out there, right? That's why we offer community groups as a church. That's, that's a group of 10 to 20 people, men and women, single, married, together, talking about God's word and encouraging one another in the faith. That's why we have D groups. That's shorthand for discipleship groups, three to five men together, three to five women together, calling each other up, loving each other, being real with each other. Peter says, if you're going to have this community, you have to, above all things, love. Verse 8, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. <laughs> he has a little qualifier, right? Above all, love deeply. Offer hospitality without grumbling. This is not who you invite to watch the game. That's not hospitality. That's a very select group of people. You know who's going to talk and who's not and da-da-da-da-da. You don't invite people into your house to watch the football game that are going to be talking and laughing and playing video games, right? You, you say that, you that's another party. It's not this one, right? Hospitality means to entertain strangers. Peter said, hey, you might have Christians coming through your town. You don't know. You need to entertain them. Hospitality is opening your heart and your home and saying, come on in to those people that are easy to love and to those people that are hard to love. That transforms the community into something miraculous. And then he says, uh, show hospitality. First, above all, love. Secondly, show hospitality. And then Peter says, I need you to use your spiritual gifts. 
Spiritual gifts are the unique gifts God gives you when you become a Christian. And you're to use them in the church to help us all grow up. If you're not using your spiritual gifts, then you will not fully function as a Christian, in my opinion. You'll miss out. If the first paragraph has to deal with service, this paragraph has, I mean, excuse me, suffering, this paragraph has to deal with service. Everybody has something to give that we all need. Here's what it says in verse 10 and 11. Each of you should use whatever gifts you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, there's two kinds of gifts. Those are speaking gifts and serving gifts. If anyone speaks, they should do so uh, as one who speaks the very words of God, in other words, with honesty, integrity, and whether you're an encourager or a teacher. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, not on their own, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. To use your gifts. So first step, we have a class every month for folks that are new, but in first step, we talk about spiritual gifts. So if you'd want to learn more about it, the 4th and the 11th of December. Dave will tell you more. But here's the point. Use your gifts. So something's happening, even on a cold day like today. At 9 and 1045, we keep having more kids in our chapel kids. We need help. Some of you have gifts of service, of teaching, that can help us with the kids that are in chapel kids. We need 6 at 9 o'clock, and we need uh, 4 at 1045 right now. There's a need for people to use their gifts to love the emerging generation. Does it take planning and sacrifice? Sure it does. But you're using your gifts and it's super, super rewarding. We like to say when you use your gifts, what you find is the places in your life where God is powerful through you. And that's a wonderful place to be. I need to stop and I want to end with Peter's attempt at a doxology. It's at the end of verse 11. Right? He should have put a period and you know, written a little more, but he just kind of fell right into it. So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. All of this, all of these attitudes and actions, they're all so that God may be praised. When we endure suffering, it's not so we can put a notch on our belt so we can have a trophy or we can you know, brag about it. It's to bring God glory. I'm trusting in him. He will get me through this and he will carry me on. And all these things, may God be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. This is a good place for you to say, amen. Amen. Yeah. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for your word. If I'm honest, Lord, I know it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to live counterculturally. That's why we need each other. The love and support, the hospitality, the use of our gifts. And yet you call us to be salt and light, to love the world around us. And so there are days when We'll be tempted. We'll be tempted to play the game just like they do. To indulge in all the sinful activities. And yet you call us to be different. And often when we choose you, there's suffering. There's ridicule. There's marginalization. 
whether it's a believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse, whether it's a believing child and unbelieving parents, whether it's a student that stands for their faith in the classroom and is ridiculed by students or teacher, in the business world where you want to do right. So, Lord, it's hard. But I pray that we might be sober-minded, clear-headed. And, Lord, I pray for those that are just stuck in the muck and mire of sin, that you would provide the way out through relationships and accountability. And would you give those people courage to turn to you and cry out to you the two-word prayer you love to hear, save me, save me. Jesus came to this earth to save us. We give you thanks, Jesus. Turn to him now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.